This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have reminded us today that you are our life. Yeah, there are so many things and that we bring into our lives and that surround us that we focus on that, Lord, are not of you and they don't glorify you. And so today I pray that you would remind us of the necessity of your word in our lives, that you would remind us of the necessity of investing in others. You would remind us of the necessity of time spent in your word. You would grow us, that you would mature us. Lord, we love you, and we ask this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we know that actions are important. You know, we are uh, given commands in a lot of places uh, to do things and to, to be about things and the activities that we invest ourselves in. And so we know that actions and calls to actions are important. But Paul today is going to give us a call to action. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. A couple weeks ago we were looking at this role of leaders and the character that God would desire in them and in us. And so today we're going to look at the really what we would call the actions of the servant and disciples making disciples and Paul's call to action in the life of the pastor, but also Paul's call to action in our lives as well. So I want to read this passage as we kind of walk through this and really look at what it is that God would have to say to us today. Paul says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths, rather train yourself in godliness for the training of the body is limited, of limited benefit. But godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason we labor and strive, and because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers, speech, conduct, and love, and faith, and impurity. Till I come, give your attention to the public reading and exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through the prophecy, through the laying on of hands by the council of the elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the passage today that we come to is a passage where Paul is encouraging young Timothy. He's probably in his 30s. He's pastoring in the city of Ephesus. And God has used him as he traveled with Paul on these many missionary journeys. But now he's invested in a church. He's pastoring a church. He's given his life to, to the congregation in the city of Ephesus. And it was a city that was very much in need of the gospel. It was very much in need of understanding the hope of Christ. And as the church was growing in Ephesus, we know that it would need leaders. We know Paul on his way back to Jerusalem before he was arrested, he spends some time with the Ephesian elders and he talks to them. Timothy is one of those Ephesian elders. And so today he's giving a word to him and he wants to talk about some things that are important in the life of this young pastor, but also important in the life of the church. So I want you to notice the first thing there is training for godliness, training for godliness. He says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have fallen. So notice that. He says, teaching, point out, point these things out to the brothers and to the sisters. Now, 
we know that as disciples of Christ, we need to grow in truth. We realize that we live in an, an era where there is a lot of things that are false in our day and time. There are, there are people who would present something as true, but it's really false. There are those who would try to say something is false, but it's really true. And so this was an age of philosophy. This was an age where there were teachings that were going on that were in contradiction to Christianity and the message that Paul was preaching. And so Paul reminds Timothy, hey, you have a role to do in understanding truth and in pointing out truth to other people because people oftentimes can get distracted. We live in a day and time where it's very easy to get distracted. Would you agree? Uh, from our phones to, uh, to social media to uh, just all of the things that bide for our time and we just tr try to stay busier and busier and busier. But in the midst of that, oftentimes we're not taking time to really look at the things that matter. It's interesting because he says, he describes him here as uh, point out, to point out, in other words, to lay before or to remind the people. And so he's concerned about these errors, and he's been talking about them in verses 1 through 5 as he identified several of those. But then he says to him, his role to do this, notice, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. It has the idea of one who is useful, one who is helpful. So Paul is saying that there is a role in the life of the church that is necessary, and that is that there are teachers and leaders in the life of the church that are looking at the things that are being taught around us and around that congregation, and they're working to help point out what is truth, to understand what that truth is. But I love how he immediately moves into, and notice his statement, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Now, how do I know if something is false if I don't first know that something is true? Timothy had been invested in. We know from this passages in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he had been invested in by his grandmother and his mother who were converts. He'd been invested in by Paul as Paul had taught him. He had had opportunities to hear the sermons of the apostles. And over time, he had begun to learn and understand that God was calling him on his life. But as he had now been commissioned into ministry, he now had a role to point out false teaching. He had a role to point out and help people understand truth in his life. But notice what he says, that first you need to be nourished by the words of faith and the teaching that you have followed. We know the importance of nourishment. We know why nourishment is important. And the servant here, is, he gives, says, is to practice this nourishment. But the servant has to teach out of the overflow of time with God. Now, we know that that's important. You know, I can't give something to you if I don't possess it myself. I can't point something out to you if I'm not aware that there's an error or that there's an issue myself. And so the necessity is that we as believers and Timothy as a leader would invest himself in continually being nourished by the Word of God and continually bringing that into his life. So as he was growing, as that nourishment was taking place, he could then in turn give it away to someone else. For pastors, it's called preaching out of the overflow. It's time that we spend with God. It's time that we spend in God's word and we allow him to nourish us and to do the things that he wants to do in the secret place. And then out of the overflow of that time spent with God, then to bring to the table a truth, an understanding that's necessary for us to understand. Now, you know, it's interesting that he says that this nourishment is something that he is to practice. It's something that's to be a part of his life. Now, notice the statement there. He says, now do this, follow the, be nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths, but rather train yourself to godliness. 
Now he's referring, as we said, back to these myths. And, and in Paul's day and time, there were these, what they would call these teachings that were there. There was the Judaism, the legalism of Judaism. There were the Roman mystery religions who were coming along and were saying, hey, there's this mystery that we've found. And so uh, the, as the Christians were leaving the pagan temples, they were coming with these, these new mystery religions of these gods who were virgin born, these gods who had died, these gods who had been resurrected. And all the t pagans were doing was trying to pull back the, the people who had left the temple. And so there were all of these competing ideas that were going on. There was mysticism and paganism and dualism. And there were all of these areas that were coming into Christianity and people were getting very confused about where they needed to invest, what, what was true and what, not was, what was not true in their lives. And folks, we have that same issue today. We have social gospels and prosperity gospels and we have metaverses and we have the... the um, prosperity type of teachings that happen in our lives and we want to design our own ethics and our own morality and we have all of these things that we bring to the table the number of people who come and say hey I was reading on the internet and I found this thing do you know about this teaching do you know about this did you know that if this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens then Jesus is going to come again you know I simply go back to my office most of the time when somebody tells me that and I have a book in my office and I get that book and I take it to them and the title of the book is 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. <laughs> Turn it around and say, be careful. Be careful. So Paul is saying, though, that we can very easily get caught up in things. In our, and I think that's true in our day and time. And that we need to be careful to not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, as he will say in Ephesians 4. But we need to know the truth. We need to know what it is that is true and those things which are counterfeit. Now, we know that from and many of you are in banking uh, and you know that if you're trained to spot a counterfeit dollar bill, the way they do that is helping you understand what the real dollar bill is and all of the things that are supposed to be on that. So when you see the faults, you've been looking at the real thing so much that you immediately can see it as something that is false. And so I think Paul's admonition to you and I today is where are we investing? Where are you investing in truth? Do you feel like that as you hear someone preach or as you read a, a website that you really have a good sense of what is true and what is false? And as a parent, are you really preparing yourself so that you can teach those things which are true and then those things which are false to, to your kids? And as a congregation, are we really working to stand against the things that are teaching that are false or really rather than silly myths? So Paul's answer for this, though is, you'll notice the next point, train yourself, train yourself. So he says, rather train yourself in godliness. So if I'm going to put away error and I'm going to put on godliness, then what does that need to look like? Because the way that I can see those things as faults means that I'm growing in my faith, I'm growing in maturity. So the word here, train yourself, is the Greek word gymnazo, which we get the word what? Gymnasium. And so it's the idea of, of rigorous training. So he says, train yourself in godliness. In other words, train yourself with a right attitude toward God, a right reverence, a respect for the attributes of God. Now this is a culture that knew what it meant to train. This is the Greek culture who had the... Um, that had the athletics of the Olympics and they trained and worked. And so everything was about training for the competition that was to come. The Romans took what the Greeks had done and they built upon that. As they built stadiums so that they could display and they could show these great 
um, athletic events that would take place. The Roman soldiers knew what it was to train. A Roman soldier could have a full backpack on a full, all of his stuff, and he could march for 20 miles in a day because he trained. And when Roman soldiers weren't in war, they trained and they trained and they trained. And Paul uses that same verbiage out of the Roman army. He uses that same thing out of the gymnasium, the arenas of Rome, and says that we are to train ourselves toward godliness. Now, so what does that look like? You know, does that mean that I have my time in the morning? You know, I get up at six in the morning, drink coffee, and then Truett and I usually head out about six thirty or seven, and we walk two miles in our neighborhood. That's a morning ritual that we do because there's part of that, the necessity of exercise. And so if I'm going to train myself toward godliness, toward spiritual maturity, what does that look like? You know, are there spiritual, are there scriptural, um, um, you know, weights that I need to have? Are there, um, you know, certain machines that I use to help build my spiritual muscle? What does that look like? And so I want to kind of look at this passage because he says that training of the body is of some limits. Notice what he says, for the training of the body has limited benefit. Now we know that it does have benefit, do we not? If I exercise and eat right and do all the things that I need to do and watch my portions and watch my carbs and I begin to exercise, does that going to benefit me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we know that it has benefit. So he's not saying that he's not in favor of those things. But what he is saying is that for me, for instance, so I trained to run a, a 5K four years ago, all right? And I worked hard during that time, those months before. I mean, I, would, I had this app on my phone, and so it would say walk, and I would walk, and it would say now run for a minute, and I would run for a minute. And then it would say now walk for 30 seconds, seconds, and then run for 30 seconds, and then walk for a minute, now run for a minute and a half. And over time, the doing of that, I built up the energy to be able to run a 5K. But how long ago did I say that was? Four years ago. I worked hard for that three months to get ready. So what benefit would that be for me if I decided next weekend I'm going to run a 5K? Why? Because it's, it's something that you've got to keep going. It's something that you have to invest in because if you stop doing it, the benefit can go away. Doesn't mean it didn't have benefit for a time, but that benefit can go away. And Paul's going to remind us in this passage that there are times in our lives where we will realize, okay, I need to do better. I need to do better in terms of my Christian life. I need to do better in terms of my godliness. I need to do things so that I am making my spiritual life a part of who I am. But we oftentimes do the same thing. We run hard for a little bit and then we pull back. We run hard for a little bit, and then we kind of settle with terms. You know, I found out that walking two miles is much easier than running three miles. Did you know that? So guess where I've settled? Walking for two miles. Because that's a much more comfortable level for doing that. I've realized that there are certain things that I can eat that I really enjoy, but I also realize that when I eat those things, they really don't benefit me on this side. And so there's a trade-off if I'm going to be healthy physically, but also that has to translate spiritually. So he's giving this analogy to help us realize that there is an investment that we need to make a priority into our lives. And that is that just as we would train ourselves to be more physically healthy, we need to be training ourselves to be more spiritually healthy. And there's a benefit to that because the benefit of, of investing myself in godliness isn't just for a day or two days because if I am working to glorify Christ, if I'm learning uh, to love, if I'm learning to reflect who he is, then that has a benefit that goes to me um, even into eternity because he says it's for this promise for this life and the life to come. But why do we spend so little time investing there? I mean, we get our news from the TV. We get our news from, um, you know, cable. 
we have time to watch this show and that show and we're in the car and we're listening to this um, classic station, whether it's the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or whichever that is, and then we're on the way you know, to this athletic event and to this practice, and then we, we're doing this with this one. We've got work, and then I've got to work extra time at work, and we get to the end of our week, and if someone said, okay, take this and fill in where it was that you invested in your spiritual life, many of us would find the chart maybe lacking because we're so busy running and doing that we're not taking time to invest in that. And so Paul reminds us that there is a training that needs to take place. But who does the training? What does it say? Train Wilson? Am I supposed to train Wilson? Maybe in some sense. But Wilson's to be training. I'm to be training. There's an ownership of training for spiritual maturity and spiritual depth that has to be a part of our lives. And he's speaking to Timothy. He says, hey, train yourself in godliness because just as there's training for the body and that gives some benefit, if you will invest in godliness, then there is a authenticity. There is a strength. There is a, a, a health benefit spiritually that comes to your life. I think it's fascinating. But then notice he gives this statement and striving for hope in verse 9. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. And then here's the saying. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, let's face it. Spiritual maturity is hard work. You can get up and read your Bible one day. You can get up and read it another day. You can get up and read it another day. And three days of 15 minutes of reading your Bible will not make you spiritually mature. You know that. Because the same body that has now been made new in Christ has all the same temptations. It has all the same thoughts. And so you find out before too long that it takes work to grow spiritually. It's an investment. You've got to take time to read. You've got to take time to pray. You've got to take time to study. You've got to take time to learn. And so all of those things are important in our spiritual life, and they benefit us when we invest in them, but they are not automatic. You know, a lot of times people were like, okay, well, I became a believer, and I went to church, and then I, I started reading my Bible, and so I prayed some. I started going to a Sunday school class, and so now everything is good until the next week when they hit something difficult. And it's like, well, what, well, what happened? I did all the right things. I was, I was doing all the right things, so they're looking for this benefit. If I do this, then this thing will naturally come. But that's a completely wrong perspective on spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We're not, it's, it's not that if I put three coins in, I get four coins back. It's a matter of you are giving your lives. You are denying yourself, take up your cross, and to follow Christ. And so we have an investment that must be in the things of God. We have an investment that must come, and it is the it is the hard work. But notice what he says here. I was studying this week and I'm like, why does he give this statement? Why does he give this statement about we labor and strive because we have put our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people? And what I realized is that ultimately godliness comes because we're in love with Jesus. Ultimately, maturity comes because we're in love with Jesus. Because there is nothing in our life that matters outside of him. There is nothing that is greater than understanding the glory of Christ. There is nothing as greater than the worship of, of him and understanding who he is and knowing that the spirit of God is inside of us and is moving inside of us and he wants to change and to transform us. And the reason for spiritual maturity is not so that you can get a cost benefit. The reason for maturity is because Jesus is everything. And if he is everything, then we give our lives to him. We give our labor to him. We give everything that we own to him. And we commit those things to his glory. And because he is changing and transforming us. And there is nothing in our lives that matters outside of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
And Paul says, he gives this statement because he's reminding us that the things that we labor for are the glory of Christ. The things that we labor for is that we will be in the presence of Christ forever. The reason that we give ourselves is to the worship of the God who loved us and gave himself for us and that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord and we must give everything to him. And he reminds us, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. And when you strive and when you labor, you don't do that without hope. You do that because of who Jesus is and because of the worship of him. We must fall in love with Christ and allow him to transform us and to bring maturity. Now, notice this statement then. He moves into verse 11, and he then goes from talking about the training that we need in godliness to the training or the teaching that we have by example and by doctrine. Now notice this, because he's going to speak of three examples. So the first example he gives is the age and the maturity example. Now notice what he says here. He says, command and teach these things, but don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example. Now notice that. Command and teach these things. Do you have a role in teaching in your home? Do you have a role in teaching other believers that are around you that you are mentoring? Do you have a role to speak the truth of God to people around you? Yes, you do. And when God gives us those things, he's giving them to us for our benefit. Now the word prescribe here, it's kind of similar like we would, the word command can often be prescribed. Because you do know, I found this out in the last couple of weeks, that when the doctor's giving you the list of things that you're supposed to do, that those are not suggestions, those are commands. Do you know that? So the doctor tells me, okay, you've torn your retina in two different places. So what I want you to do is go home and rest. I want you to watch TV because your eye's not moving. I want you to sit on the couch. I want you to sit in the chair. And I want you to watch that. Don't drive. Don't pick stuff up. Don't bend down over your waist. These are the things that I want you to do and come back and see me in a week, all right? Prescribe. He gave me a prescription. Is that a prescription, Mary? That's a prescription, right? So my translation of that the next morning was, I got a couple days at home. There's a couple things I've been wanting to do. So Celia comes around the corner while I'm cleaning out the closet. I've got all this stuff in here. I think some of this needs to go out. Some of this needs to be rearranged. And I'm leaning over when she comes around the corner. Translation, you're in trouble. <laughs> so I get put in the car after a phone call to the doctor, taken back to the retina specialist who looks at me and says, what part of sit still did you not understand? You've torn, you, you've busted another blood vessel in your eye. You have got to be still. All right? Prescription, right? He intended for me to carry that out, and my life got shut down for a few days, as you can imagine. So Liz's like, I don't want to go to work because I'm afraid of what you're going to do. Because I wasn't listening to the commands. All right? Do you get the picture? So Paul says here that we're to command and to teach these things. That in other words, there are certain things that God is giving you as a part of your spiritual life that are not suggestions. He intends for you to carry those out. You have to engage in scripture. You have to learn the art of prayer. You have to learn the beliefs of Christianity and what they are and how they impact the way, the things that you value and the things that you believe. And so God gives us this teaching. He gives us scripture not just for head knowledge, but so that those things will be lived out, so that we'll live a life that will glorify him. And as we do that, they must be a part of what we're doing, the actual actions. Because I had to translate what the doctor said to what? To action, or in my case, inaction, right? Because there was a, something that was given here, but something that had to be lived out. Now, was that for my harm? No, that was for my good, so that I could heal, so that I could 
function again and be able to have eyesight again. And so all of those things came because of the command and the teaching of these things. But then he makes a statement to Timothy, do not l let anyone despise your youth. Now I think that's fascinating. Timothy's 30 years old, all right? So would we consider him a young leader? Sure, we would. Um, you know, and young leaders oftentimes struggle with things like this because young leaders have great ideas and they have energy and they want to serve and they want to do things and they see things that are broken and they want them to be fixed and they want them to be fixed right now. And oftentimes they will go after something before they've really kind of earned the respect of those others around them. And so oftentimes leaders are pulling back the young leader. Well, you know, maybe we've not done it that way before. Well, there's a reason we don't do it like that. And so oftentimes young leaders feel like they're pull, being pulled back. But Paul tells Timothy, don't let someone look down on your youth. Now, what is he saying here? Well, I think it's probably a couple things. And I think a couple things that we need to learn as well. First thing is that... Um, we must learn to earn respect and invest in the issues of the heart. So there's an integrity factor. As young leaders, oftentimes what happens is we want to get to something, but we've not really paid the price to earn the respect of others. We've not really invested in the servant things, and we want to immediately move into decision-making. And so sometimes there's a role to play in serving in lesser roles. And so over time, you learn and have integrity and you have maturity and you move into those areas and oftentimes leaders young leaders want to short circuit that but that's not a good process a good thing to do but the other part of that is that there's no age limit on spiritual maturity because oftentimes what happens is, well, you know, I want to live my life for me. I want to live my life for now. And so young people are like, well, when I get married, then I'll start doing those things. When I get a little older, then maybe I'll, I'll do those things. But now I want to do what I want to do. And I want to live the way I want to live. And so there becomes this idea of that's something to be there for another day. But spiritual maturity is for any age. If you know Christ, the time to start spiritual maturity is now. And you can be growing in maturity if you're 10, if you're 15, if you're 18, if you're 21, if you're 30, if you're 40. There's no age limit on maturity. Maturity has to come to our lives. And when we know Christ and we know him through faith, there's not a pause button that we get to hit on godliness. It has to start now. Now, the other side of that, though, is that there's no maturity limit. Because the other side of that coin is that people will say, well, you know, I've done a lot of things in the church. I've served. I've, you know, we taught preschool. We did these things when we were younger. And so now it's time for me to just sit back and to coast. I'm at the age where it's time for me to coast. And I would say to you, that's a very dangerous place to be because there's no, mature, there's no age limit on I've matured enough, now I get to stop. Guess what? Moses was 80 when God called him to lead the children out of Israel. There wasn't an age limit on his maturity. He was called to that role. And there were many in Scripture who were called later in years of life because there was a, a something in their life. David was not ready to lead until he'd led in other ways, and then he's able to be the king. You know, God puts you sometimes on the backside of the desert for a period of time so he can mature you to bring you into that position of leadership. And Timothy is growing, and he is, is, is seeing his life uh, blossom. He's seeing a vibrancy in his faith. And Paul says, hey, don't let others discourage you. But in the same way, he's saying to us, we don't need to put age limits on things. You need to be maturing in your faith at whatever age you're at. 
And it's true. I see people. I see it all the time. People will come in. They'll come to faith in Christ, and they get involved in a Sunday school class. They'll start coming to Wednesday night classes, and they'll start doing some things. And then after a while, it's like, well, I kind of got the feel of this. I kind of got the hang of this. And then it's just like now I can just kind of kick it in neutral. And as long as I come to church, as long as I show up for Sunday school periodically, I can just kind of kick this thing in neutral. And let me tell you, you are in your most dangerous place in your spiritual life if that's the case. Because the call to godliness, the call to spiritual maturity does not have an expiration date on it. It is until the day you go to glory. And your investment in godliness, your investment in spiritual maturity is not something that you've done in the past. It is something that has to happen today and the next day and the next day after that. And we are to be building to greater maturity, to greater maturity, to greater understanding of reflecting God's glory. But notice also he gives the example, not of age and maturity, but the example of life. He says, but set an example for the believers. And then he gives this list in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then he, he names these things as this, as this way of talking about what it means to be an example. Now, it's interesting. A lot of times when we talk about sharing our faith and you know there are people around you that you need to to share your faith with oftentimes people will say well you know the way I share my faith is I just live for Christ I just try to live a good life and so people will just see my life and that will be enough but the problem is that's not the gospel that may reflect the gospel, but the gospel is something that is to be heralded. It's something to be spoken. And so it's not that I just speak my life and then speak the gospel and then I can live my life how I want to live it. But it's not that I live my life somehow in godliness, but I never speak of the hope of Christ and the gospel. See, it has to be both. And so there's an authenticity that is necessary in our lives. And he says, set an example for the believers in speech, his honesty, his truthfulness, in conduct, in righteous living and striving for holiness, in love, being self-sacrificing for others, in faith, has the idea of being faithful or trustworthy, and in purity, in action and heart, that God would have us live out a pure life in holiness that is one that's reflected in our actions, but it's also reflected in our heart. You know, Jesus talked about that, that I can lust after something and I can be saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not physically doing anything, but yet there's a mental sin that's taking place and that's got to be put away at this just as much as the action of adultery as well. So it's fascinating here that Paul would say there's an example of age and maturity, that our lives have to be a reflection. But then he goes on and he makes this statement in reference to the example of doctrine. And that is, he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading, the exhortation, and teaching. Now what does he mean by that? Because I do think there's some elements here. So the public reading of Scripture in church history was a very, very important concept. You're aware of that. We have Bibles. How many of you have more than five Bibles in your home? Raise your hand. How many of you have more than 10 Bibles in your home? Raise your hand. How many of you have more than 20 Bibles in your home? Raise your hand. Yeah, Truett's raised it because he said it was in my home. So we don't lack Bibles, do we not? But that's not always been the case because... The word of God was something that had to be translated onto these parchments and pieces of paper. And it was very expensive for that process to take place. The printing presses weren't around until the 1700s. And even then, people who lived in poorer areas could not afford to have an individual Bible for themselves. And then oftentimes, the church might have a Bible, and it might be the Bible in the entire city other than someone who was wealthy who was maybe able to provide a Bible. 
So that's where the, the age of family Bibles would come from, that people would have in the home and they would keep records in because that was the word of God for the home, for people to read. And so there was the public reading of Scripture in the home. But are you aware that there also was the public reading of Scripture in the church as well? And we've kind of lost this. The letters of Paul, when they came to the church, this letter comes to Timothy and Ephesus, when it was read, did they make copies on a copy machine and give it to everybody? No. There was one person who got up and read that, and then they heard Scripture and learned Scripture from the speaking. There was always the public reading of Scripture, then the explanation. The public reading, the explanation. And then they would do different things in order for you to memorize and learn Scripture. And people would literally bring paper from home, and they would write verses down. And they would go home and memorize that, and they would go to the Bible. Now, that was true in America. Do you see this? I want you to see this Bible. See this Bible here? This says Holy Bible on it. It's pretty good size. But I want you to read. I want to read something to you. When you open the first leaf of this Bible, it says, Presented to Suffolk Baptist Church by Martha Smith, Suffolk, Virginia, February 13th, 1890. 1890. So this was a Bible that was a part of this church that when people would come to church, they would hear a sermon, they would know, thus saith the Lord. This was a Bible that was opened probably on a stand very similar to this. And there would be someone who would publicly read scripture and that would be the reading of scripture to meditate on for that week. And Christians for generations would hear God's word read and they would know this is the word of God. And they would learn that and they would memorize it and they would hear it again and again. And that was their process of maturity. And he says, give yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. You know, one of the things I've started doing, because I'm like you, I'm busy. Sometimes I'm too busy. And I started taking the uh, app on my Bible. If you want to know what that app is, it's on my Facebook page. I put it on there yesterday. And I take that app and I go to like the Proverbs for that day or the Psalms for that day. Or I'll go to like a passage of Scripture. And it has, this, it has the text of Scripture. And at the very bottom, it has this little thing called play. And I hit play on that. And it will read to me. There is an audio on that Bible, and it will read Scripture. And how many times do we say, oh, I don't have time to read Scripture. I don't have time to do that. The book of 2 Timothy has four chapters in it. I put it on play yesterday. You know how long it took for me to read the book of 2 Timothy yesterday? Seven minutes. An entire book of the Bible, and how long? Seven minutes. Do we have seven minutes in our day? We do. And so a lot of times it's that we're, we're using excuses over here when there's really a ways that we could be immersed in God's word, where it could be nourished, where we could be gaining strength from that. And so there are ways that we can do that. And then he says teaching, the public reading exhortation and to teaching. Now I think one of the things that he's talking about here, because he goes on to talk about doctrine in some verses that follow, is this idea of beliefs. We have this idea in our culture that if someone comes to faith in Christ and we need them to start growing in their faith. So we say, okay, so you need to start reading the Bible. So read the Bible. So you need to start praying. So we'll get you to pray. You need to tell others about Jesus. So we need to pray. And then you need to probably start giving to the church. And then here's some things, you know, that you probably need to do. And it's more of a list of how to manage things then it really is the conviction of the beliefs of Scripture. One of the things that I think we could rediscover from church history is not only the public reading of Scripture and the value in that, but there's this thing that used to be used in the early church, started within the first hundred years of the church. There was a group of people called the catechumenate, and they were the disciples. They didn't have Bibles. So because the, the Bible as we know it did not exist, they would have these different letters. 
And so there was this group of believers, and then this got later transferred to children in the Middle Ages, and especially in Puritan England and in America, where they would, call, they would take this, these series of questions, and they would ask their children these series of questions, but they asked them after they had taught them about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture. And they would list these questions, and then the children would give a response back to those questions. And so they would say, you know, to them, so what is the purpose? What is your purpose? You know, well, my, why did God create you? Well, he created me for his glory and to bring him pleasure. And so they would learn these statements and these phrases that were statements of truth that the parents or the church was teaching them in order to grow them. And you know what they were about? They were about the beliefs of Scripture. They were about who God was. They were about understanding redemption, understanding resurrection, understanding salvation, understanding who the, what the church is to be and who the church is to be. They had nothing to do with, with habits. They had everything to do with beliefs. And for centuries, that was the method of discipleship in the church. Because if you transform someone's beliefs, guess what? You'll transform the thing they value and the way they behave. And we somehow have got that reversed. We start with behaviors rather than starting with beliefs. And Paul says here that there is a teaching, that there is a doctrine, there is a standard of understanding of beliefs that needs to come to the church. And he's telling Timothy, invest yourself in this. Give yourself to this. Give everything that you have. Nourish yourself in this. And when you do that, then there will be this authenticity, this example to the community and to others and to the role of faith. It's a fascinating process. Something I think we need to rediscover. By the way, if you want to see a modern version of this, write this down. It's called New City Catechism. Look it up. New City Catechism. It's a modern version of that very thing of teaching children doctrine and beliefs and then Allowing that to be a process through which you disciple in the home and helping them grow. Be prepared, though, because you're liable to grow yourself with that as well. All right, so we're at time, so let me wrap this up. So, Amanda, go to the, uh, Miranda, go to the very last slide. So the question then is this. Will you begin the process of training yourself toward Christian maturity and make goals for spiritual growth? Paul's going to go on in this passage and talk about why this is so important and the value of this and why it is that we should give ourselves to that. So the question simply is this. Were you growing and then you kind of stopped? Are you growing because maybe you never began? What is it that's preventing you from beginning the process of training yourself toward Christian maturity and making goals towards spiritual growth. There's a lot of things you can do on this life that can impact others. And that's great. Look after your health, look after yourself, look after your mental state. Those are all great. But what benefit do they have for eternity? Look after your soul. Look after your spiritual life. Look after your spiritual health. What benefit will that have? Well, it'll have a benefit here, and it'll have a benefit in eternity as well because you will be well on your way to reflecting the hope and the glory and the majesty of Christ in your life that when you appear in his presence, he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder today from your word of the necessity of growth, that we would invest ourselves in the things of your kingdom, that we would invest ourselves, we would pay close attention to our lives and to uh, our teaching, and that we would persevere in these things. Lord, you need us to finish well. So I just pray today for parents in this room. Lord, I pray that you would challenge them to begin that process of discipleship for themselves and in greater ways for their families. Lord, I pray for 
individuals in this room, that, Lord, you would remind us that you even have me this week, just the necessity of being nourished in your word, nourished in the doctrines of the faith. And Lord, that you would grow us in maturity to greater ways and that, that it would be evident to those around us. Lord, I pray that we would do all of this, though, from the recognition of who you are and the hope of Christ, that you are the Savior of the world and that you loved us and you gave yourself for us, that, God, you came, you died in our place. And because of Christ, when we um, believe in our heart that, we, that you raised Christ from the dead, when we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, that there is salvation. So, Lord, I pray for a beginning point for maybe someone even in this room that's been searching, that's been looking, that they would say, hey, today I'm believing, I'm following, I'm trusting. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room that know you and that today would be a day of renewal, that it would be a time of restoration, a reminder of giving ourselves to the, the training of godliness in our lives. You love us, and you've given yourself for us, and you've empowered us with your spirit. So, Lord, I pray that our lives would be a greater reflection of you, a greater reflection of the hope of Christ, and that you would be glorified as we make disciples uh, who will in turn make disciples. Father, that was true in the life of Paul and Timothy. May it be true of us. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 